You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of Yahweh which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of Yahweh, repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of Yahweh. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Aziah, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe, Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before Yahweh, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, 
declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 818 episodes of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. That's quite a lot, actually, quite a lot of content. I hope you are content with the content. It is Monday, February 19th, 2024, as I record this. It's a morning, it's President's Day. It's the morning of President's Day in the year of our Lord, 2024. And I just read for you 2 Kings chapter 22. What better chapter to read on President's Day? If it's not obvious why I would say that, just hear me out. And I think it will become more evident. I think I can make this connection and edify you encourage you, challenge you, provoke you to thinking, and I hope we will all be thinking more rightly about the office of the president after having considered and discussed 2 Kings chapter 22. But that said, let's go ahead and let's dive right in. Here we see Josiah reigning in Judah. How old was Josiah when he became king when he began to reign eight years old. Now I have nine children. You may know if you've been listening to this podcast for some time, if you know me in real life, IRL, you may know that. But otherwise, for those of you who are new here, I have nine children. My oldest son is named Josiah after King Josiah in the Old Testament in Second Kings 22, for instance. But I also have a son named Enoch, who is eight years old. And I think of my son Enoch becoming king over a country and beginning to reign at eight years old. My oldest son, who will be 17 this summer, he has a good head on his shoulders. He still has growing up to do. He still has things to learn, but he's got a good head on his shoulders. He thinks carefully. He's diligent. He's sober-minded. He's attentive. He's serious. I can imagine with much less difficulty, my oldest son named Josiah becoming king. But my eight-year-old son, Enoch, he would obviously need, as any eight-year-old would, quite a lot of help. After a fashion, he would be a figurehead if he became king And primarily, it would be advisors and regents who ruled in his name and instructed him and gave him the lessons on how to be king. And they would assume if they gave good instructions and taught him well and advised him well, he would have a long, full life and would be a good king. But you wouldn't just give the supreme executive title and position to an eight-year-old and not give him instruction. Or if you would, 
you would have a mess on your hands. You probably would not be king for very long. And we'll take a small detour here to talk about yesterday's sermon subject, Mike Bonnell and Paul Pavlik, two of our pastors at Summit View Community Church in Evans, Colorado, just celebrated 10 years as pastors at our church. And we are very thankful for both men. We thank God for them. We thank God for their families and for the blessing and for the encouragement that they are directly and indirectly, by example and also by interventions here and there, fellowship just being around them, being alongside them. We're glad for both men. But yesterday, Mike preached on Second John in the New Testament, and he talked about the way that you can know false teachers coming in, trying to lead the saints astray, promoting a false gospel. How do you know a false gospel from the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ? And how do you protect yourself and the flock from false gospels, false teachers, false teaching, lawlessness, or legalism? How do you protect the flock? Among other comments and observations and reminders Mike gave us yesterday morning, Sunday morning, he talked about discipline and how discipline of a father to a son is very similar in its dynamics to discipleship and making of disciples. What does a father do if he sees his son misbehaving or having a bad attitude, or if he hears his son saying something that's not quite true and his son does not understand? Maybe his son is asking a question. What would a good father do if he hears his son asking a question in earnest? He would answer the question and try to explain it to his son so that his son has an understanding mind. Sons who are wise and who want wisdom make for proud fathers. But as we read, as Mike Bonnell read for us and reminded us and encouraged us to remember, foolishness, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. By nature, that's just how children are. And it's delightful sometimes, but you still need to correct folly that would be harmful or it would be prone to offend a holy and righteous God. It would be contrary to God's purposes and his commands and his promises, or it would be hurtful to others. When you see your son doing something foolish or saying something foolish, you step in and you correct the misunderstanding or you correct the bad behavior. And that means that you apply negative consequences so that especially young children will understand the cause and effect relationship between making wise choices, making virtuous, upright godly choices on the one hand, and experiencing a blessing, having peace with God and your fellow man, loving God well, loving your fellow man as you love yourself, and having life, enjoying life from that, that that being a life-giving thing for them. Or on the other hand, so that they understand the inverse when they're being unwise or they're being ungodly or they're being unkind, harsh, unloving, disobedient, disrespectful, you apply negative consequences so that they understand the relationship, the cause and effect relationship between bad choices and untruth and harm, injury, bad consequences, bad outcomes. 
things being broken down instead of built up, things being wasted instead of preserved and kept in store for the future. Ultimately, in the worst case scenarios, you want a son to understand the relationship between sin and death, folly and shame. But that's to the purpose of correcting sin and folly and correcting a child so that a child will choose wisdom instead of folly, righteousness instead of wickedness, life instead of death. Because you love your child, you want them to live, and you want them to have a good life, and you want them as a whole person to be at peace with God and those around them to seek peace and pursue it. If my eight-year-old son, as sweet and precious as he is, if my eight-year-old son were to become king at his age right now, in his current stage of development, he would need quite a lot of instruction, and he would need advisors, and he would need counselors, and he would need mature men of upright character, not just instructing him, but also making good what decisions or directions he was able to give. More and more, I'm sure, as he became more mature, they would give him more head. They would give him more leeway to make the decisions, and this would be a gradual process. And king or no king, that's, in my view, that's my parenting philosophy, especially with eight of my nine children being sons. That's how I believe it's supposed to be. You gradually give more and more of the decision-making to your sons. You give them more and more independence as they get older, as they reach mature adulthood, as they reach and attain manhood. We're introduced to Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22 when he is all of eight years old. It says he began the reign and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. That is, if you're good at math, to say that he reigned until 39 years old. He was 39 when his reign concluded. I am going to be 38 this November. Just suppose, if you know me, my being Josiah and having reigned since I was eight years old and having a little over a year and a half left to my tenure. That's what we're given on the front end of Josiah. We're told on the front end, before we're told anything else about him, he was eight when he began and he reigned 31 years. Next, we're told his mother's name because his mother is important. And we see this actually, interestingly. Not in all cases are we given the mother's name for figures in the Old Testament, but very often we are. In the case of Josiah, we are. His mother's name was Jedida, the daughter of Adiah of Bonskath. And perhaps having an evil father in Ammon, who did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, Josiah had a mother who taught him right from wrong and taught him to do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. It says in verse 2, he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David his father. And that's a good thing. That's always a compliment in these king lists of the Old Testament. If they walk in the way of David, and oh, by the way, my oldest son's middle name is David, and this is the reason for that as well. But he walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now about this, 
before we say any more about Josiah. That first paragraph is gold. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In our context, we might think right, left, ah, conservatives or progressives, Republicans or Democrats. But what does it mean in the context of 2 Kings chapter 22? Is that what it means? I don't think so. Is something like that perhaps what is meant? Well, let's just try it on for size. Let's suppose, if we can, that there are reasons to find fault with Republicans, if you can imagine. And by that, I don't mean individual Republicans. I mean the Republican Party in the United States of America as a whole. Let's suppose that you could criticize the Republican Party, not just their platform, but what do they actually do? How do they actually behave? How do they relate to problems? How do they relate to people? How do they relate to power when they get it? How do they relate to the prospect of getting power when they don't have it? How do they relate to others, namely Democrats, when Democrats have power? If you will permit me, I will suggest that, in fact, we can criticize Republicans. It's appropriate when they are mistaken, when they get it wrong, to criticize them and to correct them. Just like you would a child if they are in the wrong, for all the same reasons you would correct a child you loved, we should correct the Republican Party. But then that is to say, what if you didn't? What if instead of correcting their mistakes, you said, I'm just going to do whatever the Republicans are doing. I'm just going to think whatever the Republicans are thinking. I'm just going to say whatever the Republicans are saying, whatever they say is good, is good. Whatever they say is not good, is not good. They become the standard. If they were wrong, then you would just be copying their mistakes. If they were saying untrue things or not telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, it could be lying by omission sometimes, if not directly stating untrue things, leaving out certain details so as to give the wrong impression and thereby being deceptive, manipulative, dishonest. You would just be copying all of that if you said, well, whatever the Republicans are, saying, whatever their talking points are, whatever I hear them prioritizing and repeating, that's me too. Just rubber stamp. I jump on that bandwagon and let's all go together when we go. As the song says, we will all go together when we go. But if you said, well, no, 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 no. I see things that concern me. I hear things that concern me on the part of the Republicans and I do not want to be like that or that or that. I don't want that to be true of me. I find that distasteful. That is disgusting. That is so obnoxious. That is gross. That is not so good. No, thank you. I want to see what we've got going on over here at the left hand, on the left side of the equation. And let's suppose, just for the sake of argument, if you could imagine, that you turned to the left because the right was concerning to you and distasteful, and offensive, and legitimately could be criticized, but they weren't being corrected. They weren't submitting themselves to correction, I'll put it that way. Let's suppose you turn to the left, and in our context, you said, well, the Democrats are capitalizing on a number of these vulnerabilities of the Republicans, 
instead of doing the thing, I really don't like it when the Republicans do, the Democrats do this other thing. And I, I do like that better. I think that's a better option. And instead of saying that thing or omitting certain things, maybe lying by omission, being deceptive in that way, the Democrats talk about this, 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 and this, and those are priorities to me. And I value those truths. I hear them articulating or mentioning. And so I'm just going to go with them on whatever they say, because I don't like the Republicans. And too many people act this way, and too many people engage in the moral arithmetic of our day in this way, as if the choices are you're either going to turn aside to the right or to the left, as if we should prefer to turn aside to the right or to the left, but you've got to pick one. What's interesting about King Josiah, what's said about King Josiah in the biblical text is it says, verse two, he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. That's the first and most important thing. He did what was right, what was correct, what was good, what was righteous and upstanding and moral and godly and pleasing to God in the eyes of Yahweh, as in God was watching, God observed him, God considered Josiah's ways, and God was pleased with what he saw because Josiah was intent to do what would be pleasing in God's sight. It says, furthermore, something about tradition and what we should interpret as tradition and legacy when it says he walked in all the way of David, his father. We see here a positive reference to tradition, not that all tradition or all traditions, plural, are so good and so laudable and so praiseworthy, but to walk in all the way of David, his father, is a compliment and it's meant to be taken as such. We're meant to interpret that reference, that description of Josiah as a good thing. Some tradition is not so good. Say, for instance, in other references to kings, when we're introduced to other kings in First and Second Kings, it says, so-and-so was so old, son of so-and-so, and so-and-so. He was so old when he began to reign, and he reigned this many years in Jerusalem or Samaria, and he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, for instance, not a compliment. If you're following the tradition of Jeroboam and the biblical text, he's in on that. Don't take it as an attaboy. It's not. So also Ahab, whoever is said to have walked in the way of Ahab, his father, is not being patted on the back for it. Don't follow every tradition just because it's a tradition. And don't get romantic about things that are old and suppose that it was better. The good old days were not always so good. The tradition is only as good as the example conforms to what is pleasing to God. And sometimes it's a little difficult to determine. And sometimes it's a mixed bag because, you know, this aspect, good. That aspect, mm, dross at best. Impurities we want to filter out. And sometimes it's all corrupt. Sometimes it's fool's gold. And it's not that all that glitters is gold. In fact, it's gross. But in this case, this is gold. He walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. As in, there's a third option. If there are two options, turning aside to the right, turning aside to the left, 
there are more than two options. If you are not turning aside to the right or to the left, what's another way we can describe that? We could say, in a more direct way, you're a straight arrow. You're a straight shooter. We see that analogy also used very often in the biblical text, making straight paths. Now, why would you want to make straight paths instead of crooked paths? Well, for one thing, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But for another thing, that's desirable because you want to get to the destination in the most efficient way if you are eager to get to the destination. If you're dragging your feet and you're trying to delay, then maybe you want to take the scenic route and you don't want to take the straight path. If you're building a road, for instance, and you're getting paid by the mile, maybe you don't want to make a straight path. But what are you doing in that case? If you're making a very curved road, when you were paid to connect this point A to that point B, you're milking the person who commissioned you and at the expense of all who will use that road, all who will use that path after you are completed with it, after you've finished it, you're preferring your own advantage and you getting a little more profit, squeezing a little more profit out of this gig, this contract. Is that loving? Are you loving your neighbor as you love yourself? Are you loving the person who's commissioned you to do the work as you ought to? Are you loving those who will benefit, who are supposed to benefit? Why are we building a path in the first place? Why build a road in the first place? Because people need to travel from point A to point B. They have goods or services in one place or the other, and they're going to need to get at those goods and services and maybe take them back where they came from. And you're setting them up to do that in a more costly way to derive less benefit themselves, also that you can derive more benefit for yourself in the building of the road. That's not so good. Josiah, not turning aside to the right or to the left, I think should be thought of more with that sort of an analogy. Not that uh, he didn't prefer being a Republican or a Democrat. Not that that analogy doesn't work at all, but I think a better way to view it is he was making a straight path for those he ruled over, for those he set the example for, for those who would carry out his orders and his edicts. He set a good example and a good precedent, even as he was following the example and the precedent of David, as David was a man after God's own heart. Josiah wants to be a man like David, who is a man after God's own heart, which is to say that if Josiah follows the example of David and the tradition of David, then Josiah is a man after God's own heart. And if others will follow the example and the directional signals and the cues of Josiah, then they similarly will find a straight path and not a crooked path, not a corrupt, inefficient path. Let's take our time. Let's take our dear sweet time, even though we're supposed to be going back and forth. Nah, let's drag our feet. No, not with Josiah. Josiah, it says, walked in all the way of David, his father, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh. Another way you could look at this, and here I'll adapt a little bit the way we think about or we distinguish between Republicans and Democrats. Democrats typically have a reputation for being progressive and believing in the wisdom of the majority, of the public. 
At least that's what they advertise. Is there a consistency there? Nah, depends on if they're getting the outcome that they want. It depends on if the majority is cooperating with the bright minds making the proposals. But at least the reputation, the way they advertise themselves is, let's go with the majority. The majority opinion is what must be right in the present. And if the majority opinion changes tomorrow from what it was today, well, then we'll realize that we were mistaken or it was good for us to follow the majority opinion today, but it's safety in numbers. And we trust that the general public is a very smart animal collectively. Republicans, by contrast, have more of a tendency to favor an aristocratic approach, the rule of the best men. That's what aristocracy is. How do we judge who the best men are? That's where the devil's in the details. And you have to be very careful that the ones who are the bright minds coming up with the proposals and the ideas on the Republican side of it are not determining who the best men are by employing very superficial, very materialistic assessments exclusively or chiefly, first and foremost. If the best men are determined by looking at bank accounts, looking at balance sheets, looking at who looks the most presidential, as in they look very handsome in a suit, they're very confident when they speak from a podium and they go shake hands, kiss babies, they look commanding, they look strong, they look confident, they look intelligent, they're charming, but they're also somebody you're going to take seriously. Any way you slice it, we trust on the Republican side of the equation in the United States these days that the best men know what is good. And if the best men today change their minds tomorrow compared with what the best men yesterday were saying, that it's new best men tomorrow compared with yesterday, well then, I guess the best men yesterday were mistaken or it was good. It was good that the best men made that determination yesterday. We're going to make a new determination today. What if sometimes the very best of men, just like the majority of all men in a country, among a people, in a culture, in a nation, can lead you astray? The very best of men can turn you aside from what is right, from what is correct, from what is good. What if the majority also in the other direction can turn you aside from doing what is good? And what if your goal should be to not turn aside to the right or to the left, but to do what is pleasing in the eyes of God? What if that's supposed to be your goal? Yes, consider what the very best men, so-called, supposedly, allegedly, are saying we should do. And yes, consider what the majority are saying we should do. But realize that all of the above are fallible. All of the above have a sinful nature. All of the above may be mistaken. They have a finite amount of wisdom and knowledge and strength. They have finite resources and a finite capacity to utilize those resources in an effective way to a good end. And what if actually, ideally, you have checks and balances whereby you consider the right and you consider the left, but what breaks the tie or what takes precedent over considerations of either is what does God say? What does his word say? God tells us what is true. He tells us what is good. He makes promises for us. He 
displays his character. He makes promises, and those promises have a character to them, and they also reveal his character. And he also calls us to be people of character in imitation of his character, in light of his promises, and to behave and to talk and to act and to be reflections of his doings, his words, his character, his being. In the 18th year of King Josiah, it says, the king sent a man. We're given his name, his father's name, his grandfather's name, and his title. He's the secretary. All you really need to boil this down to is in the 18th year of King Josiah, that is to say, the 18th year of his reign, 18 plus 8, he was 26. When he's 26, the king, this young man, sends the secretary to the house of Yahweh, that is the temple, and he gives instruction that renovations and repairs need to be made to the temple. In the process of the temple being repaired and maintained, they find a copy of the book of the law. What's fascinating about this, and this whole chapter, this whole incident is fascinating. What's fascinating about it is that for 57 years prior to this reign of Josiah's beginning, and so add 57 and 18, and you get 75 years. For 75 years, or somewhere in that span of 75 years, from the days of Hezekiah, Josiah's great-grandfather, somewhere in there, and perhaps for the majority of that time, they apparently have been without a book of the law. They misplaced the law, literally, physically. They lost it, or copies were destroyed as part of a larger shift away from worship of Yahweh and towards worship of all of the host of heaven, as happened in the days of Manasseh, Josiah's grandfather. Either the copies of the law were destroyed as part of that larger shift to worship of Baal and Ashtoreth or Asherah, or those who had copies of the law hid them. They went underground, just like it's reported, tradition has it in the Babylonian Talmud, that Manasseh actually had Isaiah the prophet put to death by having him sawn in two for rebuking him for the idolatry, for the false worship, for the wickedness that he was making Judah to do and Israel to do. It may be that those who had copies of the law, this copy of the law in particular, hid their copies of the law. We've seen something similar happen in communist countries, for instance, where Bibles are smuggled in and once they're smuggled in, they're hidden. And you don't want to be caught with a copy of the Bible. In China today, do you want to be seen with an unauthorized copy of the Bible? Do you want to be caught with a copy that has not been edited and distributed by the Chinese Communist Party? No, you probably don't. And so what do they do? If they want to operate outside of the prison system, and not be arrested, or if after being arrested they still want to have the Bible with them, 
they commit it to memory. And so they memorize extended passages of scripture so that they hide it in their hearts. But if you had a physical copy and you were still working on the memorization piece and you need something to memorize from and to double check your memorization from, if you had a physical copy, you would hide it. And what if that's why they're finding a copy of the law, a book of the law in Josiah's day in the 18th year of his reign? What if it's the exact same sort of dynamic that led to the book of the law being lost or hidden and forgotten about in the first place, that over the last 75 years, it was not always safe to be seen with a copy of the law. And if you had it and you were hiding it in your heart, you would also want to hide it and protect it physically and keep on studying it and keep on memorizing it and operating underground. You would apply it to the extent that you could, and you would hope that in due time, God would bring a king who did what was right in his eyes back to the throne. And here's Josiah, and maybe, just maybe, possibly Hilkiah, the high priest, has had this book of the law all along. But now that he sees Josiah 18 years into his reign, now actually ruling and reigning on his own authority, not relying so much on advisors and regents, but making the decision himself to have the temple repaired and renovated. Now is a good time to say, I found the book of the law. Verse eight, it says, Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. Shaphan then comes to the king. The secretary comes back to Josiah and reports, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen. Then he says, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Then he reads it. Shaphan the secretary reads the book of the law to Josiah, who is 26 years old. And when the king heard the words, it says in verse 11, when he heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. As we've talked about before, I'll remind you that tearing one's clothes was a gesture of extreme grief. If you heard that a close relative of yours had died or had been killed, you would tear your clothes to express how sad you were, how brokenhearted you were. We say brokenhearted, but they would tear their clothes. You might understand this better if I read it when the king heard the words of the book of the law, it broke his heart. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Ahikam the son of Shaphan, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me, and for the people, and for all Judah. And that seems to imply that there's a distinction between the king and the people and all Judah. Go, inquire of Yahweh for me concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us. Josiah, in having the book of the law read for him, immediately understands and he believes. He wouldn't have torn his clothes if he understood the meaning and he didn't put any stock in it. He thought that was just so much superstition and nonsense. Some story, huh? Hmm. No, 
No, he wouldn't have torn his clothes and he wouldn't have sent these men to go and inquire of Yahweh for him. But he does believe, he understands, and he believes that they are in trouble. And they're in trouble with God because if the conditional aspect of the law was that if you keep my statutes, I will establish you as a people, as a nation, as a country, as my people forever. You will be, you will be blessed. You will have prosperity. You will have material provision for you and your families. I will provide for you. I will protect you myself from your enemies. I will bless you. I will bless the fruit of your womb. Your women won't have miscarriages. The land will produce food in abundance. You will have abundance. You will be happy. You will have life. And if you disobey me, if you do what is evil, if you hear my commands and you reject them and you reject my authority, if you go worshiping the gods of the nations I've driven out of this land to give it to you as a possession, if you disobey, then the opposite of all of those blessings is what will happen. Instead of protecting you, I will raise up your enemies to come and destroy you and to enslave you. Instead of the land producing an abundance of food, there will be a shortage of food. I will send droughts and pestilence and plagues you will become a cautionary tale. If you do what is right, if you obey my commands, if you walk in my statutes, if you serve me alone, if you worship me alone, you will become an example, a positive example for all the nations of the world. All the people of the world will see in you an example to follow. They will want to be like you. They will want to imitate you. Think of the reign of Solomon, king of both Israel and Judah, following David, his father, on the throne. And the nations, the kings of the nations, sent envoys on a regular basis to ask Solomon questions or to observe, to just stand close by and listen and become wiser and to know how to make good decisions in their nations. They would report back to the king. Or in the case of the queen of Sheba, she came personally with her retinue and told Solomon all that was in her heart and asked him and tested him to see if he actually was so wise and so blessed. And it turned out he was. And Solomon was blessed in his reign because he asked God for wisdom. When God asked Solomon, what shall I give you? Solomon said, I don't know how to go out or come in. Give me wisdom to rule over this, your great people, to rule them well. God was very pleased by that. And so we see the blessings. But now in Josiah's day, if Josiah knows that his father did what was wicked, and that's why his reign was very short, two years only, he followed the bad example of his father after him. He patterned his rule. If Manasseh, by and large, is characterized by having done more evil than all of the kings who came before him over Israel and Judah, and also more evil then the nations God had destroyed and driven out before Israel and Judah. Josiah knows that they're on the wrong end of this equation and this conditional promise. On the one hand, God has promised life and blessing and provision and protection 
if they will obey his commands and his statutes and trust in him alone and worship him alone. And on the other hand, God promises he will punish them and make them an example of what not to do and how not to be if they are disobedient, if they do what is corrupt, if they are evil, if they are wicked, if they worship other gods. And Josiah knows they have been doing what is evil. They've been disobeying. They have been corrupt. They have forsaken Yahweh their God instead of worshiping him and loving him and delighting in his law. But then that's not all. That's not the end of it. Josiah asks these men to go and inquire of Yahweh for him, for the people, for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. He says, great is the wrath of Yahweh that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. Now about this, young man, Josiah, 26 years old, he recognizes that this has context. (laughs) Their fathers are to blame. And about that, we could say quite a lot, but let's just state the obvious for starters, and we'll see how much time we have to expand on that, and if we need to, even. Josiah recognizes that this is multi-generational, and he says as much. He doesn't just internalize it, keep it to himself. No, no. Our fathers put us in this position. And that's not just literally, you know, in the case of Josiah, Ammon, but fathers implying forefathers. So Ammon and Manasseh as well, for instance. And if you keep on going back and you keep on finding wicked kings, wicked forefathers who have been doing this all the way back to when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the tablets of stone written on by the finger of God himself, the people made a golden calf for themselves. This goes all the way back to the grumbling of the people of Israel when God brought them out of Egypt so that they could serve him in the wilderness, so that he could bring them into the promised land. This goes all the way back to the unbelief of their forefathers even then, even there. And we know as much from the previous chapter of Second Kings. In chapter 21, it says as much. They would not listen. They were stubborn. God was patient. God was merciful. God was kind. And the people were stubborn and stiff-necked. And disobedience was their drug of choice. These men are told by the king, go and inquire. And they do. And how they go and inquire is <laughs> also interesting. Verse 14, they go and ask Hulda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. They talk with her. They ask her. She says to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Tell the man, fascinating, that that's how God is expressing himself, answering the question of Josiah. Because at the end of the day, king or no king, he is a man. He is the man who sent them to her. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But there's some good news. It's not all bad news. That's bad news for you guys. But it's not all bad news. But, verse 18, to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus shall you say to him. 
So now he's not just a man. Now there's a recognition that he's the king of Judah. Regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh, when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Now, a thought or two on this. God is speaking through a prophetess to men sent by King Josiah, and it seems to imply that these men do not feel comfortable themselves inquiring directly of Yahweh. They don't know how, or they're not so sure he will hear them. But they're obeying the orders of Josiah. And so they go, and they seek out someone they believe will actually know how to inquire of Yahweh and who God will actually hear and respond to. And it is this prophetess. That's the first interesting thing. The second interesting thing is like the first in that Josiah apparently doesn't know how to inquire of Yahweh, or he doesn't himself feel as though he's the sort of man God would hear. And there's a humility to that. We should only extend our admiration so far, I think, because we can go directly in Christ. We can go directly to God. Christ is our intercessor. In this case, it seems as though after a fashion, if you'll permit me to think out loud for a moment, it seems as though Holda is an intercessor. They regard her as an intercessor. But God tells these men to tell Josiah that God has heard and seen Josiah's penitent response, his reverence, his grief, his remorse at a recognition that we have sinned. Our fathers have sinned against God, our God. And we have to take this very seriously. This is a problem. This is bad. Guys, God hears that and he sees that and he's pleased by Josiah's tearing of his clothes, his humbling himself before God. The example that he is setting is a good example. And because Josiah is responding like this, verse 20 says, therefore, behold, and this is God speaking, I will gather you to your father's and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. This is similar to, it seems to me, what Isaiah tells Hezekiah. This will not happen in your day, but it will happen in the not-so-distant future, that Judah will be conquered and given over into the hand of her enemies. This will happen in the days of your descendants. Wrath is coming, judgment is coming on this people and this place. Because guess what? It is a cooperative affair. Who wanted a king in the first place? The people. The people clamored for a king, remember? They came to Samuel in his old age and they said, behold, you are old and we want a king like the nations around us. And we don't like your sons. They are corrupt. They take bribes. You don't. They're not like you though. And that's a problem for us. We don't like that they take bribes. We want a king. Since we're going to change things up anyways, we might as well change in the direction of normalizing ourselves in the international community's eyes. So we want a king like the nations have kings. Samuel's very offended. If you'll remember, he's very upset about this. He takes it personally. 
And God says, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Going back to Samuel, the people got what they demanded. And God told Samuel, give them a king. They want a king? Obey them. Give them a king. I'll show you who to give them. And even the giving of the king was a kind of natural consequence for Israel. Because Saul did the very things Samuel was told by God to warn the people of Israel a king would do. Saul will take your best and your brightest, your most beautiful daughters, your handsomest, strongest, most competent, confident sons. He will take the best fields, the best vineyards, the best houses, and give them to his favorites. He will tax you. He will take the excess of your work, prophets, the toil that you toil under the sun. You will not enjoy all of the fruits of your labors like you would have. But so be it. Have a king. Here you go. And after he's spent, have another. And David was a very good king. But this has been building for some time. And God tells Josiah through Huldah, the mercy is you will not see the disaster that I will bring upon this place because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh. Well, that's something, right? I don't like, personally, I don't like Hezekiah's response when he is told by Isaiah all of the evil that will happen to his descendants, the sons that will be born to him. I don't like Hezekiah's response. I don't like it. When Isaiah says, your sons will be carried as slaves to Babylon and made into eunuchs, Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord is good. Why not? As long as there will be peace in my day. And maybe there's a goodness to that that I'm underappreciating. There's a contentedness to Hezekiah's response. Certainly what God has said is good. God is good. It's fair. It's just. But I can't help preferring Josiah's response over Hezekiah's response. And not for no reason is my oldest son named Josiah David and not Hezekiah. (laughs) Because Josiah's response, which we will get into in the next chapter, Josiah's response is so different. He's not just grieved. He actually does something about it. He doesn't just mourn and tear his clothes and inquire of God through these men going to Huldah, the prophetess. He springs into action and he gives orders. He gives commands for actions to be taken to put Judah back on the right path to doing what is right and not doing what is evil doing what is good in the sight of God. It's a complicated legacy that Josiah has. Don't misunderstand me. But isn't that the case with all of these men we've read about? If any detail is gone into, they're all complicated men. And yet, when it says at the beginning, before you read any of the rest, that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left when we read that, that's worth quite a lot. And that is a aspirational goal I believe we should have to do what is right in the eyes of God. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. Jesus says, this is not Old Testament, like it's outdated, no longer applicable, expired, past its sell-by date. No. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus says also that on the last day, many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, 
Have we not? And they'll fill in the blank with lots of very impressive things on their CV, curricula vitae, their resume. They will fill in the blank with very impressive and seemingly very pious accomplishments. And Jesus will say to them, he tells us, he will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I don't know you. I never knew you. We were not intimate. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Great Commission is not just go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is that, but it's not just that. And this is where we can lie by omission when we leave out the part where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What did Jesus command us? I think in very many cases we can relate to Josiah with the finding of the book of the law because it was hidden. It was forgotten about after having been hidden because if you go into that, if you bring that up, you will be punished for it. Just like the fool in Proverbs hates being corrected and will abuse you for correcting him. Just like Jesus says, don't give to dogs what is holy. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Whoever had the copies of the book of the law hid their copies until the coast was clear. And in our day, very often, we stick to maybe something very similar, very reminiscent of what was left of the worship of Yahweh in Judah. They had the temple, and they knew whose temple it was. The high priest certainly knew whose temple it was. And maybe he wasn't hiding it. And maybe he himself didn't know why he was going through the rituals he was. Maybe the priest himself, Hilkiah, the high priest himself, was as surprised as anybody to find this copy of the book of the law. But I doubt it. I prefer that this was hidden. The high priest knew about it all along, similar to the hiding of the heir to the throne. Remember in 2 Kings 11, how Joash, Jehoash was hidden by his aunt and the high priest. And the high priest in that time, at a certain point, several years into the reign of Athaliah, who had usurped the throne, she was not installed by anybody else. She just took power. Athaliah made herself queen. She was a proto-feminist, you might say. Athaliah had made a mess of it, and the high priest himself approached the palace guards and said, come with me, I want to show you something, and showed them the rightful heir to the throne, Jehoash. And before she could stop them, before she knew what was up, they made Jehoash king in the temple. And she came in and she screamed, treason, treason, and they took her out and they put her to death because she was a wicked woman, she was an evil woman, a murderer, a serial killer of her own royal family so she could become queen. It's like that, I think. I could be wrong. It doesn't directly state in this chapter. But it's like that, I think, that Hilkiah hides this copy of the law and they're doing the work on the temple. They're renovating the temple. And he sees that the time is right. And the response is not to shrug. And it's not to say, oh, well, I guess it was bound to happen sooner or later. I guess... Our goose is cooked. No, that is not a righteous response. That is not a godly response. Now, with the time we have left, we're going to pivot and we'll come back to 2 Kings in our next episode, Lord willing, tomorrow. We'll live and do this or that. And tomorrow, Lord willing, I'll record 
a follow-up episode, getting into the next chapter. But with the time we have left, I want to turn our attention now to President's Day in the United States. To get us kicked off, let's read from the Wikipedia article for President's Day, shall we? Starting from the top, President's Day, officially Washington's birthday at the federal governmental level, is a holiday in the United States celebrated on the third Monday of February. It is often celebrated to honor all those who served as presidents of the United States and since 1879 has been the federal holiday honoring founding father George Washington, who led the Continental Army to victory in the American Revolutionary War, presided at the Constitutional Convention of 1787, and was the first U.S. president. The day is an official state holiday in most states, with names including Washington's Birthday, President's Day, President's Day, President's Day, and Washington's and Lincoln's Birthday. The various states use 15 different names. Depending upon the specific name, the state holiday may officially celebrate Washington alone, Washington and Abraham Lincoln, or some other combination of U.S. presidents, such as Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who was born in April. George Washington was born on February 22, 1732. Washington's birthday was celebrated on this date from 1879 until 1970. To give federal employees a three-day weekend in 1968, the Uniform Monday Holiday Act moved it to the third Monday in February. The day soon became known as President's Day. The presence and placement of the apostrophe varies and provides an occasion to remember all the U.S. presidents to honor Abraham Lincoln's and Washington's birthdays together or any single president of choice. As many states and cities followed suit, some states that had been celebrating Lincoln's birthday on February 12th combined the two into President's Day. Lincoln led the nation through the American Civil War, preserved the Union, abolished slavery, bolstered the federal government, and modernized the U.S. economy. And we'll just pause here for a moment and reflect on what this means that we set aside a day every year to remember U.S. presidents. One or multiple or all of them. Why? Why do we do this? Is it good that we do this? Or can it be good that we do this? That's what I want to ask. On the one hand, we could say that just like it's appropriate for us to read in Second Kings, chapter 22, for instance, for example, about King Josiah. How old was he when he began to reign? How long did he reign? What was his legacy? Who were his parents? What did he do? Did he do what was good? If so, give us some examples. Let's remember some examples of good governance. A good example is important if you want to do what is good. Bad examples are also good to remember if you want to not do what is bad. If you want cautionary tales and you want some aspirational models and you're a king, maybe you look at the king lists and you look at First and Second Kings and you look at First and Second Samuel and you look at First and Second Chronicles on either end of these books that we're currently in. We're almost through Second Kings, by the way, and then we'll move on into First Chronicles. But if you're a king, perhaps it benefits you to study other kings who came before you, 
and to look at their legacy. Is it a good legacy that you want to imitate? Is it a bad legacy that you want to avoid imitating? Is it only good for kings to study about former kings? Is it only good for presidents to study about former presidents? Well, I would say no. I would say no, and here's part of my reason. One, Josiah has help. For instance, for example, what kind of help does Josiah get from the age of eight until his 18th year, presumably? There's nothing of note, not to say he didn't do anything for those 18 years, but there's nothing remarked on. There's nothing talked about. Presumably, for most of those 18 years, he was regarded as still being in the age of minority. He was still regarded as being something of an understudy or an adolescent. He had help ruling and knowing what decisions to make and how to judge and how to be a king. Did those who helped him themselves serve as king? Well, no, not per se, but also yes, after a fashion. If he was doing what he was told by those who were advising him, and they were actually the ones making the decisions, they weren't king, but they needed to know what was good governance. If they did know what was good governance, it's probably because they had the legacy of previous kings to consider themselves. They knew how Ammon had turned out. They knew how Manasseh had done. They knew about Hezekiah. There would have still been living memory of those men, even if written chronicles of their rules and reigns were scarce or were being hidden. They probably knew all of the kings going back to Saul and to David because we know about all of the kings going back. And it helped them to help Josiah to rule well, to be prepared for being reintroduced to the book of the law and to respond appropriately to the book of the law being read to him. What about the people? Not the regents, not the advisors, not the senior officials, but the common man. Would it be beneficial for a typical man of Judah to know about these kings who had come before? Would it be appropriate for a common man to study and to teach to his sons also about the kings who served well and the kings who served poorly? I would say yes for a couple of reasons. One, to see the hand of providence at work in the history of their people, in the history of the world, to know God in the present by his previous actions. In fact, that's why we're given the word of God in the first place, so that we would know his character in the present and forevermore into the future based on how he's revealed his character in the past, what he has said, what he has done. It would be appropriate to study these kings in part because God made a special point to interact with these kings and to bless or to punish their kingdoms based on their character, based on their way of relating to him, based on the way that their people related to their good examples or bad examples, God blessed or cursed. And so it would be good for a common man of Judah, for instance, for example, to also pay attention as a recounting of God's providence in relation to good kings and bad kings, was issued, presented, made available, one way or another. To know our 
presidents in American history, in the history of our country, to study about them, to pay attention to when they did what was good, they ruled wisely and well, and there was a good outcome, is, I think, I believe, similarly beneficial and a good idea. (laughs) We should study the example of good presidents, wise presidents, virtuous, effective, upstanding presidents we've had. And since they're not all that way, a number of them have been dirty, rotten scoundrels. A number of them have been meh, nothing really to see here. It's good for us to look at cautionary tales from the history of our country. Now, the President's Day reading about the President's Day history at Wikipedia doesn't highlight how we should set aside a day every year to think on folly when that's cropped up, sin when that's come to light in the history of our country. It doesn't go there. It's only the positives, but then that's also something you see in history, that there's a tendency among those who are meh or those who are dirty, rotten scoundrels to only focus on the benefits because they just want what they want and they don't think about, okay, what should we not do that is evil? What should we dissuade? What should we discourage that is evil or unwise and will come to a bad end? But if we wanted to have good leadership and we wanted to be good leaders in cases where we have authority, the way we would go about it is consider good examples we should follow and also bad examples we should not follow. That's where wisdom is found. Seeing bad outcomes coming from bad decisions and saying, I don't want to do that. I don't want that. Like Josiah having the book of the law read for him and tearing his clothes because he realizes they're in a bad place. They've been doing bad things because they're bad people, because they're corrupt, because they're stubborn, because they won't listen, and it's going to have a bad outcome. And similarly, when God gives an answer to the inquiry, he says, I've seen your penitence. I've seen how you've humbled yourself before me, and I'm pleased by that, and there's a reward in that you will come to the grave in peace. You will be brought to rest with your fathers in peace because I'm pleased with what I see in you, what you've just demonstrated. Allow me to propose to you that the two presidents mentioned by name most often in this intro section for the Wikipedia page for President's Day, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. If you look at the history of those two men and you look at what influenced them and how they related to the people around them, but more importantly, how they related to God and how that informed the way that they related to the people around them, You can't miss their biblical motivations, their biblical influences. And what I mean is that Abraham Lincoln was taught to read with the Bible. The Bible was his textbook after a fashion to learn how to read. And we see in quotes from his personal conversations, from his speeches, that Abraham Lincoln was very familiar with the Bible. He knew it. In fact, I think he had hidden it away in his heart. However complicated his relationship with God was on a personal level, he was honest about that. And it seems to me from my having studied about Abraham Lincoln, that it grieved him and he didn't see it as ideal by any stretch. 
that he struggled, say, for instance, after the death of his son, or he struggled with the Civil War raging and hundreds of thousands of men killing and being killed on fields of battle. He struggled with faith, and it pained him that he struggled. It grieved him that he struggled. And yet, there is no atheistic assertion you can derive from Abraham Lincoln's struggles. If you want to find some isolated, out-of-context sentence where he admits some reservations, doubts, confusion, that does not mean that he was an atheist. And I would propose that he was a great president. We remember him as a great president, not a perfect president by any stretch. And he is a controversial example in some cases, in some regards, for how his way of prosecuting the Civil War expanded the role of the federal government, expanded the role of the president, changed the relationship of the federal government to the states, the states to one another. American people increasingly, since Lincoln's day, have put a high degree of confidence in the impact federal decisions, especially at the level of the president, will have for good or for ill. Not that we trust that all of the decisions made by the president will be beneficial. That's why we get so worked up and so upset about who is going to be president, who's not going to be president. But it was not always so. And yet, insofar as we remember Abraham Lincoln as having been a great president, insofar as he was able to expand the role of the president or the federal government with regards to the life of the American people, it's because there was a wisdom and there was a uprightness to Lincoln's personal example, to his personal engagement. The things he said, the things he did were commendable. And we can't forget that the virtue that was in him was informed by the Bible, the word of God, the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the person of Jesus Christ, God, the son, the sermon on the Mount, the kings of Israel and Judah, Moses, Abraham. His name is Abraham Lincoln, not for no reason, not by accident. The man was named after Abraham in the Old Testament, for crying out loud. Or what about George Washington? George Washington, being such a figure as he was, not a perfect man either, but being an upright man, being a respected man, he was not an atheist. And he wasn't unfamiliar with the scriptures. He wasn't unfamiliar with the Christian faith. He wasn't agnostic. And he was by no means the secular example that very often our portrayals of him or our remembrances of him make him out to be. Lying by omission, by leaving out so much of what he had to say, what he wrote and what he spoke and what he did, a lot of people in a revisionist bend, similar to the waxing and the waning of religious life in Israel's history, in Judah's history, a lot of people, because they want to clear away the old religion, the old Christianity of earlier generations of Americans, downplay, if not excluding any mention of George Washington's Christian faith, Abraham Lincoln's Christian faith, they make these men out to be effectively atheists. 
as if you can take a modern view of separation of church and state and retroactively apply it to what they actually said and what they actually did and how they actually lived, what they were actually saying were their reasons and their motivations and their considerations, as if you can sit in judgment of them while at the same time cherry-picking a phrase from a letter of Thomas Jefferson's to a Baptist church talking about the erection of a wall of separation between church and state. And you can make that mean whatever you want it to mean. You can make as vague and nondescript as you want, as fuzzy as you want, any clear references to Christian faith and scripture in our day, and you will not be challenged for it. And at the same time, you can make as precise and strict as you want the most obscure and fuzzy of references to a kind of secularism and de facto godlessness among the founding fathers, and you won't be challenged on that either. And all of the above is because the leading influences in today's America actually don't like Christianity. In fact, they resent Christianity. If Christianity gets in the way of what they want to do, what they want to aspire to, what they want to propose, what they want to advocate, and they are the best men or they're the majority, let's just leave Christianity out of it, shall we? We want the American people to turn to the right. And so let's not go into what the Bible says as if that has any bearing whatsoever. We'll say God bless America. Yeah, sure. Right. But let's not actually consider what sort of a people, what sort of a country God blesses. Let's pray for God to protect us or to provide for us after a fashion, but let's not get into the example of Israel and Judah. Let's not have the kind of reaction Josiah had to the reading of the book of the law that was found in the temple during the renovations, tearing our clothes. What's fascinating about the history of presidents and their engagement with the American people for most of our country's history is that routinely presidents, great presidents especially, called for national days of prayer and fasting and repentance. Repent of what? Sinning, folly, sins against God and one another. Repent, fast, abstain from food and drink and other recreational activities for a day and commit yourself to prayer to Almighty God on behalf of our country and our people that he would bless us that he would help us to turn from our sins and turn towards his righteous standard and put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That sort of engagement with the American people in recent decades has been very much intentionally forgotten. Very similar, I would say, to how 75 years after the beginning of the reign of Manasseh, the conclusion of the reign of Hezekiah, you have in Josiah, in his 18th year of kingship, the finding of a book of the law. Like they forgot that these even exist or that it, they had ever existed. So effective sometimes is the propaganda in the interim between upstanding and righteous kings that all remembrance of what motivated or what guided or what directed the good kings of old is forgotten and not by accident. At first, maybe two generations ago, three generations ago, decisions were made. Let's erase references to these 
words of God, the revealed word of God, God's commands, God's promises. Let's erase all of that. And if two generations ago the decision was made, anybody who says, no, let's not, anybody who would remind us, like Isaiah, we'll saw into, we'll make public examples of, we'll destroy them, we'll kill them even if we have to. There may come a time in our country's history as well where we remember that Abraham Lincoln learned to read with the Bible. Separation of church and state, his speeches and his personal conversations are filled with references to the Bible and his biblical literacy. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Where did he get that from? Who did he get that from? He got that from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, when accused of casting out demons by the prince of demons, Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. If I cast out demons by the power of the devil, who do your sons cast out demons by the power of? Hmm? Abraham Lincoln went there. Even his name being Abraham goes there and is a remembrance of what made presidents like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington great in the first place. Their faults, their flaws, their frailties were not due to an excess of Christian faith, friends, but rather it was a grief to them when they were not as good of Christians as as they should have liked to be, as they wanted to be, as they knew they should have been. And yet it would be a mistake to suppose that there is more authority in someone slapdash saying, like an abracadabra, separation of church and state today, there is more authority in that today than there was in their times when they made positive references to Jesus Christ and the Bible and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Can you imagine with me someone like Abraham Lincoln running for president today and winning For that matter, can you imagine George Washington running for president today? It's an interesting thought exercise. If you are willing to go there, if you can go there, put them in contemporary clothing, if it helps. Give them a modern haircut, but leave the soul of these men intact, their mindset, their worldview, their priorities, what they believed about God and man. Leave all of that in place and ask yourself, would they be elected today? Every now and then I conduct a similar thought exercise just personally thinking about Old Testament patriarchs and kings and prophets. And I ask the question of myself. And sometimes if I'm in conversation with someone privately, I'll ask them as well. Can you imagine if David or Abraham were to visit one of our churches in America today? Would they be welcome? Would they be allowed to become members of our churches today? Could they, if they were able to be members, could they occupy or hold any kind of a official position of authority in our churches today? The answer is, I think, and everybody I talk with agrees with me on this, probably not. They probably actually would have sermons preached in their direction. They would probably be stigmatized, ostracized, pushed to the margins, regarded as eccentric. Of course, they were men of their time, as were George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, men of their time. And who knows, right? Maybe Washington and Lincoln and others would, having the soul that they had in their days, get with the times, be on the right side of history. 
maybe they would be more prudent than I'm giving them credit for. But I think that the soul of this people today has been corrupted and has been made to forget the things their generations knew and believed to be true and acted according to and recognized in these men a harmony with. I think that George Washington, having been the first president, I think Abraham Lincoln, having been such a powerful president, such an influential president, we still remember him today, it speaks to the character of their generations, that they were presidents in the first place. But it speaks to the character of God, that our country was blessed with good leadership, wise leadership, upright leadership in previous generations. And it speaks to the character of our country today that we have bad leadership. We have representative government. And unfortunately, when our representative government is chaotic, dysfunctional, rude, uncouth, dishonest, corrupt, that reflects on our being all of those things as well. And the big question is, like Solzhenitsyn writes in Live Not By Lies, his essay published right before he was exiled from the Soviet Union, The question is, at what point will we say, not they, it's not Washington, it's not Denver, it's not those people in the media, it's not those people in big tech, it's not those people in Congress, it's not those people in the White House, it's not those people in this or that political party's leadership. It's we, the people. It's us. We are the reason our political situation is chaotic and dysfunctional. We are the reason. This is a reflection of our having intentionally forgotten over generations. God, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When it turns out that we don't, in fact, we punish those who would remind us of his commandments. The inference, most reasonable, is we hate him. And how do we think that's going to work out? How do we think that's going to turn out for our country, either today or in the next generation or two? How long do you think we've got? We content ourselves saying, We're stronger than fill-in-the-blank country. We're stronger than Russia. We're stronger than China. We're stronger than Iran, although increasingly the handwriting is on the wall that maybe we're not. What if we're not stronger than one of those countries? What if we're not stronger than a coalition of those countries? What if they take a cheap shot and they knock us out? What if this new weapon in space disables our satellites and we're flying blind? Our economy is blinded. Our military is blinded by essentially an EMP in Earth's orbit. Is this perhaps the rumblings ahead of a major earthquake or a volcanic eruption that can't be avoided at this point, but it could be delayed by God Almighty himself if he saw penitence, if he saw our tearing of our clothes with the reading of the book of the law, if he saw us humbling ourselves, what if this President's Day, that's where our minds should be going? I'm fond of quoting Abraham Lincoln, for instance in a response he gave to one of his aides during the Civil War. He was purportedly asked whether he believed God was on the side of the Union or the side of the Confederacy. He replied, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Where's that been in recent decades? When was the last time we had a president who talked like that, who thought like that, who felt like that, who led like that? When was the last time we were the sort of a people in our generation who insisted on a president who would 
articulate that sentiment. When was the last time we were the sort of people who would be represented in that sort of a sentiment being expressed at the highest levels of our government? We are not governed by this principle today. In fact, to the contrary, it seems as though we're governed according to the exact opposite principle, with both sides, the right and the left, routinely trying to insist that God is on our side, because we're always right. And not ever do I hear men in positions of power or campaigning for the same saying, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. If we see hints of such a sentiment, how do we respond? Are we the sort of people who respond favorably? And if we do respond favorably, say, for instance, with Mike Johnson, Speaker of the House, if he says, if you want to know my thinking on something, read the Bible. That's my worldview, or that's what I aspire to have as my worldview. I think you see in Mike Johnson a similar sort of a sentiment, and how do so many Republicans and all the Democrats and the mainstream media relate? They panic. They freak out. They abandon ship if they're on the Republican side in too many cases until they've sabotaged the Republican majority in the House of Representatives, besieging, waging a war of attrition against that sentiment. Well, so also in Lincoln's day, there were plenty of moderate Republicans who also reflected the American people in their districts. There were plenty who profited handsomely off of friendly relations with the Confederates, the Democrats, those who owned black bodies as slaves and dispensed with them for economic benefit, justifying inhumane treatment by insisting they're not really human. They're not really people like we are people. Where did the abolitionist sentiment come from? It came from the conviction that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did my rights come from? From God. God created me. God gave me purpose. God gave me telos. God gave me liberty when he gave me responsibility. If God has made me for a purpose, then I have the right to pursue the purpose for which God has created me. If God has commanded me, then I have the right to do what God has commanded me to do. And because we've denied God's authority to command. We also simultaneously have seen the erosion of even the notion of unalienable rights predicated on God's authority. And we also see, have a peace with this, an erosion of the respect for the rule of law, but also not just the rule of law, but the oath of office that men elected swear. Who are they swearing an oath to? God. Before whom are they swearing that oath? The people. Who will hold them accountable? If they deny that there is God to reckon with for oath-breaking, and if they rest assured that the people will not hold them accountable for breaking oaths because the people also break their oaths routinely, then the whole lot of us deserve exactly what we get if our country falls apart and descends into chaos and we're tearing one another apart and destroying ourselves. It's not God even who has to do the work of destroying us. He just gives us over to a reprobate mind. We become incapable of reasoning. And no wonder we have such poor civil discourse. We've been given over to a reprobate mind. We've been given over to a mind which is incapable of being reasonable. We cannot reason with one another, and it is impossible for 
others to reason with us because we've rejected the truth about God. We've suppressed the truth about God in our unrighteousness because we prefer our unrighteousness to life itself. And so also liberty is a cheap thing if only we want the freedom to enslave ourselves to sin. Previous generations of Americans understood and were led by men who affirmed liberty in the context of being free to obey God, to love God, to worship God, to obey God, to serve God, to obey his commands, to love one another as we love ourselves. We have to first love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and we have to first be loved by God. We love because he first loved us. If it's been insisted that we should remember the presidents and forget all about their Christian faith, we know exactly why we are where we're at, why there is crisis after crisis, perpetual instability. Our situation is so unstable because malicious and corrupt men profit handsomely off of crisis. And so they foment rebellion. They foment crisis. They foment insurrection even, riots even, because they stand to make money on both ends of the transaction. And all the while, if we have given ourselves over to apathy, indifference, love of self, love of pleasure, rejoicing in wrongdoing actually and not rejoicing with the truth, then again I say we deserve exactly what we've got and worse. And worse is coming if we don't repent. Before we adjourn this episode, please let me read for you Washington's farewell address to the people of the United States. If the origins of President's Day and you having the day off, perhaps, possibly, or not being able to go to certain places that are closed for President's Day, if the origin of that is what day was George Washington born, what was his example, what was his legacy, how do we benefit from that still to this day, and we want to remember him What did the man himself say in his farewell to the people of the United States? Starting from the top, here's what it reads. Friends and fellow citizens, the period for a new election of a citizen to administer the executive government of the United States being not far distant, and the time actually arrived when your thoughts must be employed in designating the person who is to be clothed with that important trust. It appears to me proper, especially as it may conduce to a more distinct expression of the public voice, that I should now apprise you of the resolution I have formed to decline being considered among the number of those out of whom a choice is to be made. I beg you at the same time to do me the justice to be assured that this resolution has not been taken without a strict regard to all the considerations appertaining to the relation which binds a dutiful citizen to his country, and that, in withdrawing the tender of service which silence in my situation might imply, I am influenced by no diminution of zeal for your future interest, no deficiency of grateful respect for your past kindness, but am supported by a full conviction that the step is compatible with both. The acceptance of, and continuance hitherto in, the office to which your suffrage have twice called me have been a uniform sacrifice of inclination to the opinion of duty and to a deference for what appeared to be your desire. I constantly hoped that it would have been much earlier in my power, consistently with motives which I was not at liberty to disregard, to return to that retirement from which I had been reluctantly drawn. 
The strength of my inclination to do this, previous to the last election, had even led to the preparation of an address to declare it to you, but mature reflection on the then perplexed and critical posture of our affairs with foreign nations and the unanimous advice of persons entitled to my confidence impelled me to abandon the idea. I rejoice that the state of your concern, external as well as internal, no longer renders the pursuit of inclination incompatible with the sentiment of duty or propriety and am persuaded, whatever partiality may be retained for my services, that in the present circumstances of our country, you will not disapprove my determination to retire. The impressions with which I first undertook the arduous trust were explained on the proper occasion. In the discharge of this trust, I will only say that I have, with good intentions, contributed towards the organization and administration of the government the best exertions of which a very fallible judgment was capable. Not unconscious is the outset of the inferiority of my qualifications. Experience in my own eyes, perhaps still more in the eyes of others, has strengthened the motives to diffidence of myself, and every day the increasing weight of years admonishes me more and more that the shade of retirement is as necessary to me as it will be welcome. Satisfied that if any circumstances have given peculiar value to my services, they were temporary, I have the consolation to believe that, while choice and prudence invite me to quit the political scene, patriotism does not forbid it. In looking forward to the moment which is intended to terminate the career of my public life, my feelings do not permit me to suspend the deep acknowledgement of that debt of gratitude, of which I owe to my beloved country for the many honors it has conferred upon me, still more for the steadfast confidence with which it has supported me and for the opportunities I have since enjoyed of manifesting my inviolable attachment by services faithful and persevering, though in usefulness unequal to my zeal. If benefits have resulted to our country from these services, let it always be remembered to your praise and as an instructive example in our annals that, under circumstances in which the passions agitated in every direction were liable to mislead, amidst appearances sometimes dubious, vicissitudes of fortune often discouraging in situations in which not unfrequently want of success has countenanced the spirit of criticism, the constancy of your support was the essential prop of the efforts and a guarantee of the plans by which they were affected. Profoundly penetrated with this idea, I shall carry it with me to my grave as a strong incitement to unceasing vows that heaven may continue to you the choicest tokens of its beneficence, that your union and brotherly affection may be perpetual, that the free constitution which is the work of your hands may be sacredly maintained, that its administration in every department may be stamped with wisdom and virtue, that, in fine, the happiness of the people of these states, under the auspices of liberty, may be made complete by so careful a preservation and so prudent a use of this blessing as will acquire to them the glory of recommending it to the applause, the affection, and adoption of every nation which is yet a stranger to it. Here, perhaps, I ought to stop, but a solicitude of your welfare, which cannot end but with my life and the apprehension of danger natural to that solicitude, 
urge me on an occasion like the present to offer to your solemn contemplation and to recommend to your frequent review some sentiments which are the result of much reflection, of no inconsiderable observation, and which appear to me all important to the permanency of your felicity as a people. These will be offered to you with the more freedom as you can only see in them the disinterested warnings of a parting friend who can possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel, nor can I forget as an encouragement to it your indulgent reception of my sentiments on a former and not dissimilar occasion, interwoven as is the love of liberty with every ligament of your hearts. No recommendation of mine is necessary to fortify or confirm the attachment. The unity of government which constitutes you, one people, is also now dear to you. It is justly so, for it is a main pillar in the edifice of your real independence, the support of your tranquility at home, your peace abroad, of your safety, of your prosperity, of that very liberty which you so highly prize. But, as it is easy to foresee that, from different causes and from different quarters, much pains will be taken, many artifices employed, to weaken in your minds the conviction of this truth. As this is the point in your political fortress against which the batteries of internal and external enemies will be most constantly and actively, though often covertly and insidiously directed, it is of infinite moment that you should properly estimate the immense value of your national union to your collective and individual happiness that you should cherish a cordial, habitual, and immovable attachment to it, accustoming yourselves to think and speak of it as of the palladium of your political safety and prosperity, watching for its preservation with jealous anxiety, discountenancing whatever may suggest even a suspicion that it can in any event be abandoned, and indignantly frowning upon the first dawning of every attempt to alienate any portion of our country from the rest, or to enfeeble the sacred ties which now link together the various parts. For this you have every inducement of sympathy and interest. Citizens by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. With slight shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and political principles. You have in a common cause fought and triumphed together. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. But these considerations, however powerfully they address themselves to your sensibility, are greatly outweighed by those which apply more immediately to your interest. Here every portion of our country finds the most commanding motives for carefully guarding and preserving the union of the whole. The North, in an unrestrained intercourse with the South, protected by the equal laws of a common government, finds in the productions of the latter greater additional resources of maritime and commercial enterprise and precious materials of manufacturing industry. The South, in the same intercourse, benefiting by the agency of the North, 
sees its agriculture grow and its commerce expand. Turning partly into its own channels, the seamen of the North, it finds its particular navigation invigorated, and while it contributes in different ways to nourish and increase the general mass of the national navigation, it looks forward to the protection of a maritime strength to which itself is unequally adapted. The East, in a like intercourse with the West, already finds, and in the progressive improvement of interior communications by land and water, will more and more find a valuable vent for the commodities which it brings from abroad or manufactures at home. The West derives from the East supplies requisite to its growth and comfort, and what is perhaps of still greater consequence. It must of necessity owe the secure enjoyment of indispensable outlets for its own productions to the weight, influence, and the future maritime strength of the Atlantic side of the Union, directed by an indissoluble community of interest as one nation. Any other tenure by which the West can hold this essential advantage, whether derived from its own separate strength or from an apostate and unnatural connection with any foreign power, must be intrinsically precarious. While then every part of our country thus feels an immediate and particular interest in union, all the parts combined cannot fail to find in the united mass of means and efforts greater strength, greater resource, proportionably greater security from external danger, a less frequent interruption of their peace by foreign nations, and what is of inestimable value. They must derive from union an exemption from those broils and wars between themselves, which so frequently afflict neighboring countries not tied together by the same government, which their own rivalships alone would be sufficient to produce, but which opposite foreign alliances, attachments, and intrigues would stimulate and embitter. Hence, likewise, they will avoid the necessity of those overgrown military establishments, which under any form of government are inauspicious to liberty and which are to be regarded as particularly hostile to republican liberty. In this sense it is that your union ought to be considered as a main prop of your liberty, and that the love of the one ought to endear you to the preservation of the other. These considerations speak a persuasive language to every reflecting and virtuous mind, and exhibit the continuance of the union as a primary object of patriotic desire. Is there a doubt whether a common government can embrace so large a sphere? Let experience solve it. To listen to mere speculation in such a case were criminal. We are authorized to hope that a proper organization of the whole, with the auxiliary agency of governments for the respective subdivisions, will afford a happy issue to the experiment. It is well worth a fair and full experiment. With such powerful and obvious motives to union affecting all parts of our country, while experience shall not have demonstrated its impracticability, there will always be reason to distrust the patriotism of those who in any quarter may endeavor to weaken its bands. In contemplating the causes which may disturb our union, it occurs as matter of serious concern that any ground should have been furnished for characterizing parties by geographical discriminations, northern and southern, Atlantic and western, whence designing men may endeavor to excite a belief that there is a real difference of local interests and views. One of the expedients of party to acquire influence within particular districts 
is to misrepresent the opinions and aims of other districts. You cannot shield yourselves too much against the jealousies and heartburnings which spring from these misrepresentations. They tend to render alien to each other those who ought to be bound together by fraternal affection. The inhabitants of our Western country have lately had a useful lesson on this head. They have seen in the negotiation by the executive and in the unanimous ratification by the Senate of the treaty with Spain and in the universal satisfaction at that event throughout the United States, a decisive proof how unfounded were the suspicions propagated among them of a policy in the general government and in the Atlantic states unfriendly to their interests in regard to the Mississippi. They have been witnesses to the formation of two treaties, that with Great Britain and that with Spain, which secure to them everything they could desire in respect to our foreign relations towards affirming their prosperity. Will it not be their wisdom to rely for the preservation of these advantages on the union by which they were procured? Will they not henceforth be deaf to those advisers, if such there are, who would sever them from their brethren and connect them with aliens? To the efficacy and permanency of your union, a government for the whole is indispensable. No alliances, however strict, between the parts can be an adequate substitute. They must inevitably experience the infractions and interruptions which all alliances in all times have experienced. Sensible of this momentous truth, you have improved upon your first essay by the adoption of a constitution of government better calculated than your former for an intimate union and for the efficacious management of your common concerns. This government, the offspring of your own choice, uninfluenced and unawed, adopted upon full investigation and mature deliberation, completely free in its principles, in the distribution of its powers, uniting security with energy, and containing within itself a provision for its own amendment, has a just claim to your confidence and your support. Respect for its authority, compliance with its laws, acquiescence in its measures, are duties enjoined by the fundamental maxims of true liberty. The basis of our political systems is the right of the people to make and to alter their constitutions of government. But the constitution, which at any time exists, until changed by an explicit and authentic act of the whole people, is sacredly obligatory upon all. The very idea of the power and the right of the people to establish government presupposes the duty of every individual to obey the established government. All obstructions to the execution of the law, all combinations and associations under whatever plausible character with the real design to direct, control, cataract, or awe the regular deliberation and action of the constituted authorities are destructive of this fundamental principle and a fatal tendency. They serve to organize faction, to give it an artificial and extraordinary force, to put in the place of the delegated will of the nation the will of a party, often a small but artful and enterprising minority of the community, and, according to the alternate triumphs of different parties, to make the public administration the mirror of the ill-concerted and incongruous projects of faction, rather than the organ of consistent and wholesome plans digested by common councils and modified by mutual interests. However combinations or associations of the above 
description may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely, in the course of time and things, to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Towards the preservation of your government and the permanency of your present happy state, it is requisite not only that you steadily discountenance irregular oppositions to its acknowledged authority, but also that you resist with care the spirit of innovation upon its principles, however specious the pretexts. One method of assault may be to effect in the forms of the Constitution alterations which will impair the energy of the system, and thus to undermine what cannot be directly overthrown. In all the changes to which you may be invited, Remember that time and habit are at least as necessary to fix the true character of governments as of other human institutions. That experience is the surest standard by which to test the real tendency of the existing constitution of a country. That facility and changes upon the credit of mere hypotheses and opinion exposes to perpetual change from the endless variety of hypotheses and opinion. And remember especially that for the efficient management of your common interests in a country so extensive as ours, a government of as much vigor as is consistent with the perfect security of liberty is indispensable. Liberty itself will find in such a government, with powers properly distributed and adjusted, its surest guardian. It is indeed little else than a name where the government is too feeble to withstand the enterprises of faction, to confine each member of the society within the limits prescribed by the laws, and to maintain all in the secure and tranquil enjoyment of the rights of person and property. I have already intimated to you the danger of parties in the state, with particular reference to the founding of them on geographical discriminations. Let me now take a more comprehensive view and warn you in the most solemn manner against the baneful effects of the spirit of party generally. This party, unfortunately, is inseparable from our nature, having its root in the strongest passions of the human mind. It exists under different shapes in all governments, more or less stifled, controlled, or repressed. But in those of the popular form, it is seen in its greatest rankness and is truly their worst enemy. The alternate domination of one faction over another, sharpened by the spirit of revenge natural to party dissension, which in different ages and countries perpetuated the most horrid enormities, is itself a frightful despotism. But this leads at length to a more formal and permanent despotism. The disorders and miseries, which result gradually incline the minds of men to seek security and repose in the absolute power of an individual, and sooner or later the chief of some prevailing faction, more able or more fortunate than his competitors, turns this disposition to the purposes of his own elevation on the ruins of public liberty. Without looking forward to an extremity of this kind, which nevertheless ought not to be entirely out of sight, the common and continual mischiefs of the spirit of party are sufficient to make it the interest of the duty of a wise people to discourage and restrain it. It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community 
with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which find a facilitated access to the government itself through the channels of party passions. Thus, the policy and the will of one country are subjected to the policy and will of another. There is an opinion that parties in free countries are useful checks upon the administration of the government and serve to keep alive the spirit of liberty. This, within certain limits, is probably true, and in governments of a monarchical caste, patriotism may look with indulgence, if not with favor, upon the spirit of party but in those of the popular character, in governments purely elective, it is a spirit not to be encouraged. From their natural tendency, it is certain there will always be enough of that spirit for every salutary purpose. And there being constant danger of excess, the effort ought to be by force of public opinion to mitigate and assuage it. A fire not to be quenched, it demands a uniform vigilance to prevent its bursting into a flame, lest instead of warming, it should consume. It is important, likewise, that the habits of thinking in a free country should inspire caution in those entrusted with its administration to confine themselves within their respective constitutional spheres, avoiding in the exercise of the powers of one department to encroach upon another. The spirit of encroachment tends to consolidate the powers of all the departments in one, and thus to create, whatever the form of government, a real despotism. A just estimate of that love of power and proneness to abuse it, which predominates in the human heart, is sufficient to satisfy us of the truth of this position. The necessity of reciprocal checks in the exercise of political power by dividing and distributing it into different depositories and constituting each the guardian of the public wheel against invasions by the others has been evinced by experiments, ancient and modern, some of them in our own country and under our own eyes. To preserve them must be as necessary as to institute them. If in the opinion of the people, the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be in any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way which the Constitution designates. But let there be no change by usurpation. For though this, in one instance, may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. The precedent must always greatly overbalance in permanent evil any partial or transient benefit which the use can at any time yield. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. The mere politician, equally with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. A volume could not trace all their connections with private and public felicity. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property? for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation desert the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality 
can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is substantially true that virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. The rule indeed extends with more or less force to every species of free government. Who that is a sincere friend to it can look with indifference upon attempts to shake the foundation of the fabric. Promote then, as an object of primary importance, institutions for the general diffusion of knowledge. In proportion as the structure of a government gives force to public opinion, it is essential that public opinion should be enlightened. As a very important source of strength and security, cherish public credit. One method of preserving it is to use it as sparingly as possible, avoiding occasions of expense by cultivating peace, but remembering also that timely disbursements to prepare for danger frequently prevent much greater disbursements to repel it. Avoiding likewise the accumulation of debt, not only by shunning occasions of expense, but by vigorous exertions in time of peace to discharge the debts which unavoidable wars may have occasioned, not ungenerously throwing upon posterity the burden which we ourselves ought to bear, the execution of these maxims belongs to your representatives. But it is necessary that public opinion should cooperate to facilitate to them the performance of their duty. It is essential that you should practically bear in mind that towards the repayment of debts there must be revenue, that to have revenue there must be taxes, that no taxes can be devised, which are not more or less inconvenient and unpleasant, that the intrinsic embarrassment inseparable from the selection of the proper objects, which is always a choice of difficulties, ought to be a decisive motive for a candid construction of the conduct of the government in making it and for a spirit of acquiescence in the measures for obtaining revenue which the public exigencies may at any time dictate. Observe good faith and justice towards all nations. Cultivate peace and harmony with all. Religion and morality enjoin this conduct, and can it be that good policy does not equally enjoin it? It will be worthy of a free, enlightened, and at no distant period a great nation to give to mankind the magnanimous and too novel example of a people always guided by an exalted justice and benevolence. Who can doubt that in the course of time and things, the fruit of such a plan would richly repay any temporary advantages which might be lost by a steady adherence to it? Can it be that providence has not connected the permanent felicity of a nation with its virtue? The experiment, at least, is recommended by every sentiment which ennobles human nature. Alas, is it rendered impossible by its vices? In the execution of such a plan, nothing is more essential than the permanent, inveterate antipathies against particular nations and passionate attachments for others should be excluded and that in place of them just and amicable feelings towards all should be cultivated. The nation which indulges towards another an habitual hatred or unhabitual fondness is in some degree a slave. 
It is a slave to its animosity or to its affection, either of which is sufficient to lead it astray from its duty and its interest. Antipathy in one nation against another disposes each more readily to offer insult and injury, to lay hold of slight causes of umbrage, and to be haughty and intractable when accidental or trifling occasions of dispute occur. Hence frequent collisions, obstinate, envenomed, and bloody contests. The nation prompted by ill will and resentment sometimes impels to war the government, contrary to the best calculations of policy. The government sometimes participates in the national propensity and adopts through passion what reason would reject. At other times, it makes the animosity of the nation subservient to projects of hostility instigated by pride, ambition, and other sinister and pernicious motives. The peace often, sometimes perhaps the liberty, of nations has been the victim. So likewise, a passionate attachment of one nation for another produces a variety of evils. Sympathy for the favorite nation, facilitating the illusion of an imaginary common interest in cases where no real common interest exists, and infusing into one the enmities of the other, betrays the former into a participation in the quarrels and wars of the latter, without adequate inducement or justification. It leads also to concessions to the favorite nation of privileges denied to others, which is apt doubly to injure the nation making the concessions by unnecessarily parting with what ought to have been retained and by exciting jealousy, ill will, and a disposition to retaliate in the parties from whom equal privileges are withheld. And it gives to ambitious, corrupted, or deluded citizens who devote themselves to their favorite nation, facility to betray or sacrifice the interests of their own country without odium, sometimes even with popularity, gilding with the appearances of a virtuous sense of obligation, a commendable deference for public opinion, or a laudable zeal for public good, the base or foolish compliances of ambition, corruption, or infatuation. As avenues to foreign influence, in innumerable ways, such attachments are particularly alarming to the truly enlightened and independent patriot. How many opportunities do they afford to tamper with domestic factions, to practice the arts of seduction, to mislead public opinion, to influence or all the public councils? Such an attachment of a small or weak towards a great and powerful nation dooms the former to be the satellite of the latter. Against the insidious wiles of foreign influence, I conjure you to believe me, fellow citizens. The jealousy of a free people ought to be constantly awake, since history and experience prove that foreign influence is one of the most baneful foes of republican government. But that jealousy to be useful must be impartial, else it becomes the instrument of the very influence to be avoided, instead of a defense against it. Excessive partiality for one foreign nation and excessive dislike of another cause those whom they actuate to see danger only on one side and serve to veil and even second the arts of influence on the other. Real patriots who may resist the intrigues of the favorite are liable to become suspected and odious while its tools and dupes usurp the applause and confidence of the people to surrender their interests. The great rule of conduct for us in regard to foreign nations is, in extending our commercial relations, to have with them as little political connection as possible. 
so far as we have already formed engagements, let them be fulfilled with perfect good faith. Here let us stop. Europe has a set of primary interests, which to us have none or a very remote relation. Hence, she must be engaged in frequent controversies, the causes of which are essentially foreign to our concerns. Hence, therefore, it must be unwise in us to implicate ourselves by artificial ties in the ordinary vicissitudes of her politics or the ordinary combinations and collisions of her friendships or enmities. Our detached and distant situation invites and enables us to pursue a different course. If we remain one people under an efficient government, the period is not far off when we may defy material injury from external annoyance, when we may take such an attitude as will cause the neutrality we may at any time resolve upon to be scrupulously respected, when belligerent nations under the impossibility of making acquisitions upon us will not lightly hazard the giving us provocation, when we may choose peace or war as our interest, guided by justice, shall counsel. Why forego the advantages of so peculiar a situation? Why quit our own to stand upon foreign ground? Why, by interweaving our destiny with that of any part of Europe, entangle our peace and prosperity in the toils of European ambition, rivalship, interest, humor, or caprice? It is our true policy to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. So far, I mean, as we are now at liberty to do it, for let me not be understood as capable of patronizing infidelity to existing engagements. I hold the maxim, no less applicable to public than to private affairs, that honesty is always the best policy. I repeat it, therefore, let those engagements be observed in their genuine sense. But in my opinion, it is unnecessary and would be unwise to extend them. Taking care always to keep ourselves by suitable establishments on a respectably defensive posture, we may safely trust to temporary alliances for extraordinary emergencies. Harmony, liberal intercourse with all nations, are recommended by policy, humanity, and interest. But even our commercial policy should hold an equal and impartial hand. Neither seeking nor granting exclusive favors or preferences, consulting the natural course of things, diffusing and diversifying by gentle means the streams of commerce, but forcing nothing. Establishing with powers so disposed in order to give to trade a stable course to define the rights of our merchants and to enable the government to support them, conventional rules of intercourse, the best that can present circumstances and mutual opinion will permit but temporary and liable to be from time to time abandoned or varied as experience and circumstances shall dictate, constantly keeping in view that it is folly in one nation to look for disinterested favors from another, that it must pay with a portion of its independence for whatever it may accept under that character, that by such acceptance it may place itself in the condition of having given equivalents for nominal favors and yet of being reproached with ingratitude for not giving more there can be no greater error than to expect or calculate upon real favors from nation to nation. It is an illusion which experience must cure, which a just pride ought to discard. In offering to you, my countrymen, these counsels of an old and affectionate friend, I dare not hope 
they will make the strong and lasting impression I could wish, that they will control the usual current of the passions or prevent our nation from running the course which has hitherto marked the destiny of nations. But if I may even flatter myself that they may be productive of some partial benefit, some occasional good, that they may now and then recur to moderate the fury of party spirit, to warn against the mischiefs of foreign intrigue, to guard against the impostures of pretended patriotism, this hope will be a full recompense for the solicitude for your welfare by which you have been dictated. How far in the discharge of my official duties I have been guided by the principles which have been delineated, the public records and other evidences of my conduct must witness to you and to the world. To myself, the assurance of my own conscience is that I have at least believed myself to be guided by them. In relation to the still subsisting war in Europe, my proclamation of the 22nd of April 1793 is the index to my plan. Sanctioned by your approving voice and by that of your representatives in both houses of Congress, the spirit of that measure has continually governed me, uninfluenced by any attempts to deter or divert me from it. Any deliberate examination with the aid of the best lights I could obtain, I was well satisfied that our country, under all the circumstances of the case, had the right to take, and was bound in duty and interest to take, a neutral position. Having taken it, I determined, as far as should depend upon me, to maintain it with moderation, perseverance, and firmness. The considerations which respect the right to hold this conduct, it is not necessary on this occasion to detail. I will only observe that, according to my understanding of the matter, that right, so far from being denied by any of the belligerent powers, has been virtually admitted by all. The duty of holding a neutral conduct may be inferred, without anything more, from the obligation which justice and humanity impose on every nation, in cases in which it is free to act, to maintain inviolate the relations of peace and amity towards other nations. The inducements of interest for observing that conduct will best be referred to your reflections and experience. With me, a predominant motive has been to endeavor to gain time to our country, to settle and mature its yet recent institutions, and to progress without interruption to that degree of strength and consistency which is necessary to give it, humanly speaking, the command of its own fortunes. Though in reviewing the incidents of my administration, I am unconscious of my intentional error. I am nevertheless too sensible of my defects not to think it probable that I may have committed many errors. Whatever they may be, I fervently beseech the Almighty to avert or mitigate the evils to which they may tend. I shall also carry with me the hope that my country will never cease to view them with indulgence and that, after forty-five years of my life dedicated to its service with an upright zeal, the faults of incompetent abilities will be consigned to oblivion, as myself must soon be to the mansions of rest. Relying on its kindness in this as in other things, and actuated by that fervent love towards it which is so natural to a man who views in it the native soil of himself and his progenitors for several generations, 
I anticipate with pleasing expectation that retreat in which I promise myself to realize without alloy the sweet enjoyment of partaking in the midst of my fellow citizens the benign influence of good laws under a free government, the ever-favorite object of my heart, and the happy reward, as I trust, of our mutual cares, labors, and dangers. George Washington, United States, 19th September, 1796. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the conclusion of Washington's farewell address to the people of the United States. Give it some thought. Think it over. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I need to run on this President's Day, my being off work. We are being gifted a free bed set from a family in our community who is moving to Minnesota. A very beautiful bed set, but it needs to be gotten. So I'm going to take my older sons with the pickup and borrow the trailer of our neighbor across the street and go get that furniture and bring it home and install it. Happy President's Day to you and God bless and forgive our country as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.